Our first reading today is from Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Elysia of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of uh, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I will give this land from the, from the wadi of Egypt and the great river, the Euphrates. Our second reading today is from Luke 13, 31 to 35, and can be found on page 989 of the Church Bibles. At the time, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go and tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you. Now may I speak in the name of God, creator, redeemer, sustainer. Amen.
God's will be done. It's something we say when we're facing a situation with more than one potential outcome. When we're seeking divine guidance about choices that we have to make in our own lives or in the life of the church. Something we say when we put our trust in God for the future, for the unknown that lies ahead. And it's great that we can do that, that we can say God's will be done with confidence. For our faith assures us that God is a faithful God, a God who's loving and compassionate, a God who wants us to enjoy life in all its fullness. And so we can trust God to lead us along a pathway that ends ultimately in the kingdom of heaven. God's will be done in your life, in my life, in the church's life. But it's one thing saying God's will be done and quite another matter to actually live as people who trust God implicitly, as people who allow God to have authority over us and over our own desires and wills. For if we're honest, often we try to retain control of our own lives, to determine our own pathway through life, instead of submitting to God. The story we heard about Abram gives us, I think, an insight into how we struggle as humans to actually live faithful lives, trusting God. At the point in the story we've reached, Abram was worried about the fact that he didn't have any children. There was no one to whom he could pass on his inheritance. So he's worked out which of his servants shall be his heir when the time comes. Now, we might want to congratulate him. He's taken succession planning seriously. His forward planning is being done. Great, we would say. But Abram hadn't taken into consideration what God was capable of doing in his life what God intended. There were lots of things Abram didn't know yet about God and God's purposes. He was working only on his limited insight and not that bigger picture that was God's. But at least Abram does talk with God about his plans and that's something that we should be pleased about. 
He takes it to God. And when God responds to him by saying, but Abram, you will have your own descendants, and God reveals that they'll be as numerous as the stars, Abram believes and put his trust in God. And we know from how the story unfolds later in Genesis, with a few hiccups along the way, that God fulfills the promise. And Abraham has not just one son, not just two, but actually rather a lot if you follow all the story through. And the generations of God's people begin to multiply. The promise is being fulfilled. But when... God reveals that Abraham will have sons, children. Abraham believes and abandons his own plans and puts his trust in God. God's will be done, he says. But immediately afterwards, God makes another promise to Abraham about land. Land that he is to possess. And you might expect that Abram would just say, fine, yeah, I believe, I trust. But he doesn't. Because we're not like that. Abram doesn't believe this time. Doesn't trust God. Even though taking possession of land might seem easier to accomplish than having children when you're in your 90s. Abram wants God to give him some evidence, to prove it to him. And isn't that a problem that we all have? We want God to give us some signs, to give us some evidence, to show us exactly how the promise is going to be fulfilled, what the steps are along the way. We want to know how we're getting from here to there. We want to know what to do next. And a lot of the time we assume that we will see God's promise being fulfilled in our own experience, our own lifetime. At one level, we might accept that some of the promises lie far ahead, but we still expect to see signs of it in our time. But look at God's response to Abram. What we heard about was a strange ritual being enacted involving animal sacrifice. But did you note that it also takes place in Abram's dreams while he's in a deep sleep? So let's not get hung up about whether it actually happened and what was going on. It's something going on in his psyche. And in the ancient world, the thing that was described of 
cutting things is a practice, it's to do with how covenants, treaties, agreements would be made. You always cut a covenant in biblical language. And in the ancient world, it did involve the shedding of some blood of animals, usually. But that's by the by. What we're being told is that in his dream, Abram discerns that God is present, if you like, formalising the promise, reinforcing it, guaranteeing it by this ritual that makes it a two-way committed promise. But that's the only evidence that God gives Abram. The evidence is simply that it is God who's making the promise. And that should be enough. It's God who's come into Abram's life and has declared this will happen. And God's not going to do anything else other than reveal the divine presence with Abram and reaffirm the promise, the word. There's not going to be any other proof. That's all the reassurance Abram is going to get. And Abram also learns that it's not going to be him who receives the land. It will be his descendants, future generations. The fulfillment of the promise lies in the future. And the promise of land was land from the Nile to the Euphrates, not the land of Israel. Not some geographic territory. And land from the Nile to the Euphrates actually represents the known world. It's a promise about the kingdom of God and Abram inheriting that and not some specific bit of geographic territory. So it's grand scale. For the future, assured by God, for Abram and all his descendants. God's will be done. Abram needs to learn and to follow in faith in that direction. And of course it's true for us. We have the promise of the kingdom. God's kingdom will come on earth. Now it might be by the time we've got home for lunch, but I suspect it probably won't be. And that it lies somewhere in the future. Probably not in our lifetime. But that doesn't mean it's not a promise. 
And it's a promise we should trust. God's will be done. But what does that mean for us and how we should live as people of faith in the here and now? So let's look at the passage we heard about Jesus from Luke's Gospel. Jesus is doing what Jesus always did. Getting on with proclaiming the kingdom of God by engaging with people, transforming their lives in ways that improve their lives. It normally got up the noses of the religious authorities who didn't like what Jesus was doing because he didn't conform to what they thought was the right way of doing things. But Jesus was committed and steadfast in doing what God had sent him to do, to love, to forgive, to bring people to fullness of life, to work for justice, to challenge corruption, He'd have been working for climate change or against the issues that are causing problems. Jesus got on and got messy of trying to make a difference for good as signs of the kingdom, of what God intends. And we're told of how some Pharisees come along and try to warn him of what Herod wants to do. Now, the Pharisees aren't normally on Jesus' side, so we wonder what they're up to here. But again, we don't need to get sidetracked as to whether they're trying to deflect Jesus from what he's doing and would just like him out the way. But whatever their motives, and however much Herod might want to do something to shut Jesus up, Jesus isn't going to be deflected from doing the will of God. And he's going to stay where he is until he's done what is required of him. Whether there are setbacks, whether there is opposition, or whether he is surrounded by those who are his supporters, it doesn't matter to Jesus. He's going to get on. And he talks about, I'm going to do it today and tomorrow, and on the third day, my work will be fulfilled. Now, he's not talking literally. And we know from the way the gospel unfolds what that third day is all about. It's about resurrection, the other side of crucifixion and death. Jesus is committed. Jesus persists and will go to Jerusalem at the right time, God's time, not to fit in with some other human plan. And Jesus laments over Jerusalem to reveal to us more of God's nature and God's purposes. 
He laments that Jerusalem hasn't got it yet, hasn't understood what God's will is all about. But he doesn't lament with anger and frustration. The lament is to talk about how God desires to bring everything together, like a mother hen gathers her chicks, to bring security, comfort, love. This is how God feels towards us and people everywhere. No matter how confused and mixed up we might be, God's purposes are loving and compassionate. And he wants to draw us together as one people, secure in the eternal kingdom. Jesus reveals to us what God's will is all about. He also shows us how we should live as his disciples, trusting in those ultimate promises of God, believing that we are all on our way to the kingdom, and doing what we can to bring that kingdom a little nearer. To show our faithfulness, we need to live as those who embody the teaching of Christ. Do we? Are we loving and forgiving? Are we compassionate? Do we strive for justice and peace? and the unity of God's people? Do we believe God's will and live it? I pray that we will. I pray that we do. I pray that we will accept the forgiveness that comes from God when we inevitably mess up. But let us be those who are full of faith, and no matter what confronts us, turn to God, seek God's guidance, and say, God's will be done, not mine, this day. Amen.